We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, beginning in, in verse 7, and Lord willing, we'll make it through the end of, of the chapter. As you're turning there to Ecclesiastes 11, um, it was last winter, I took a flight, it was an early morning flight, and it was one of those, yeah, those, those cold mornings where it's, it was drizzling, uh, not quite snow, but it was very cold, gloomy. And you could, you could just feel it in the air. Everybody was a little bit grumpy. You could feel it on the road when people were checking in. Everybody sitting there waiting. It was, it was overcast. It was, it was a heavy day. I myself was found yeah, lots of reasons to grumble about everything in my heart. And uh, I remember as we, we boarded the, the plane, nobody's really talking to each other. And uh, it was just kind of those quiet mornings where everybody's miserable. And you're getting on a plane, and we sit down, and everything's kind of quiet. And uh, we... We take off, and we, we make it up through, through the clouds. And as we're going through the clouds, of course, it's, it's dark. And then, almost a miraculous thing happened. We came through the clouds, and then all of a sudden, there was light. And, and the sun rising there in the east just shone through. And I was in the back, and I could see not everybody, but almost everybody in the plane look over and lean in toward the light. And you could see smiles come and countenance was just lifted because there was something that the light did for all of us that, that, yeah, that lifted us out of the darkness that we were just in. And that, I think, is what the book of Ecclesiastes is intended to do for us. It's a book that meets us in a world where oftentimes we have... <laughs> The clouds, as it were, are blocking out the sun. And we feel the weight of reality and the hardships of life. And we're, we're wondering, is there meaning down here? What is going on down here? And what we need is light from above to, to shine in and to show the way and to help us to understand what life means under the sun. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. It began back in chapter 1 with the preacher who we believe to be Solomon, began his sermon, which his whole thing is a, is a sermon. He says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He begins with that thesis statement that life is vain, meaning you, can't, you try to grasp at it and you can't, you can't get it. And then he takes us in this book on a tour really through, through life in all the different kinds of mysteries that we face. Talks about our pursuits and pleasures, our quest for meaning. Talks about the evils that we face, the, the oppressions, the injustice, then the reality of, of prosperity and, and all the things that, that we encounter along the way. And the reality that, that no matter what, if we're always trying to, to, in the moment, grab those things to find life, that they will never seem to be enough. That you know, one more dollar and one more of this and one more of that. Trying to find meaning in this life by grabbing a hold of the things of life is, is kind of like trying to catch smoke or the clouds, I think is the image that we've, we've used a couple times. It's, those things are real and they're there, but you, you can't grab them. You must simply in, enjoy them. And then he hangs over all of this the reality that soon we will die. And what, what he's teaching us through all of this journeying, as we're going to see today in the way that he concludes, is that he wants us to, to look to the end of life, 
see what life is really all about, and then to bring that reality back into this moment to help us to see everything different. In case I haven't recommended this from the pulpit, I want, I want to highlight this book called Living Life Backward by David Gibson. David Gibson, Living Life Backward. And that's really what the book is all about. It's a, it's a commentary, very readable, in the book of Ecclesiastes that talks about the way to get the most out of life now is to live it backwards, meaning see it from the end, bring that now, and live in light of that. And that is what we find the author doing here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and 12. And our big idea this morning, kind of the, what the whole thing is about, is this. Before it is too late, enjoy God's goodness, obey God's commands, and prepare for God's judgment. Before it is too late, enjoy God's goodness, obey God's commands, and prepare for God's judgment. We'll unpack that in, in kind of two, two sections. The first is going to run from chapter 11, verse 7, all the way through 12, 8. Uh, and, and we're going to call it, um, yeah, enjoy God's gifts while you can. Enjoy God's gifts while you can. And then the second one is going to be, uh, we'll call it live today in light of the last day. Live today in light of the last day. And that'll be chapter 12, verse 9 through, through the end there in verse 14. So enjoy God's gifts while you can. Would you read with me here in chapter 11, verse 7? Follow along as I, as I read. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. 12.1 Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon begins the conclusion of his sermon with a sobering instruction for us. Enjoy God's gifts while you can. I'm not sure if you caught it there. Did you hear what word was repeated four times? Starts with an I, ends with an H. There's not a lot of those words in the English language. Youth. Four times he spoke of youth, youth, youth. Because what he's saying in this this section is that youthfulness provides opportunity to enjoy life and serve God that, in a sense, is lost with old age. And as he unpacks this for us, there's going to be... And you've got to remember, this is Solomon at the end of his life as an older man, looking back on all of his, what he might even say would be potentially wasted years in some sense. And as we see this, there's, there's kind of two themes under this, this idea of enjoy God's gifts while you can. The first is that your life is to be enjoyed... And the second, that, that youth is, is vanity. Your life is to be enjoyed. Did you catch that there in verses 7 and 8 where he speaks of life, or I'm sorry, light being sweet and it being pleasant for the eyes to see the sun? This is a poetic way of talking about being alive. 
that God gives us life and He gives days in which we, we live. And in our youth, these days are generally sweet and pleasant. This doesn't mean, again, that there, there aren't hardships, but, but generally speaking, young people have energy. They have capacity. They have physical strength. I, I, have, I have five young kids, and you just, you're around them, and you're like, where does this energy come from? Or if you want a real illustration, just watch after the service. All the kids, they, I mean, they're just, they go bonkers, right? And we're like, go outside. There's a playground. But they, like, we watch them. They have all of this energy. He's saying that is to be used for God's glory. You see, youthfulness and adolescence and teenage years and, and college and young professional and whatever that number goes to for youth, which the older I get, the further that gets down the, down the road, but that youthfulness is to be seen as a gift from God that enables you to enjoy the gifts of life that He has given and to serve Him and His eternal purposes. And we are to take each day and each opportunity and receive them as a gift that leads us to, verse 8, rejoice in them all. And then again, verse 9, rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you. One of the major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes is the exhortation to enjoy life. Now, there are many things we must endure that certainly aren't enjoyable, but, but we've been reminded that in the midst of all of the mess, we are to receive God's good gifts with gratitude, with thankfulness. That when there's a sunset, stop and look at it and be amazed that every night God shows off that He's an artist. Every meal that comes, to pause and be amazed that there's a Creator that makes all kinds of different foods with all kinds of different tastes and smells. Every time you sit down, sit down to, to drink whatever beverage it is that you're consuming, to, to marvel that there's a God who gives such diversity of things to enjoy. When there's waves at the ocean, to see them and to marvel. Green grass. Yesterday while I was working on this, I sat outside just looking at, just tried to take it in. I was like, all right, Lord, help me to just look. And he just gave me grace to just marvel for a moment. Grass. It's green. I know you all know that. That's basic. But it's pretty amazing. When you just look at blades of grass and trees with leaves and bugs that fly and birds, I mean, they sing and, and there's different colors of flowers and it's amazing. He says receive all of those little things as good gifts to be enjoyed. Arts and music and sports and jobs and, and books that you read. Gifts to be enjoyed from Him. Now, one of the cautions that also comes with this exhortation to enjoy is don't make enjoyment itself the point of life because that actually becomes a misuse of the gifts. It turns the blessings that God gives into idols. See, what, what, what many of us know all too well is how easy it is to push God aside and ignore Him, but to take what He gives and try to enjoy it. Well, what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to see is that that is actually a serious sin. That, that, that gifts like food or, or sexual intimacy or, or drink or travel or achievements, that those experiences and enjoyment of those things aren't the point of life. Rather, what they are intended to be are sign point, and signposts that, that, that point us and, and direct our affections to the God who gives them 
So that when we see something or smell something or hear something that's enjoyable, it, it is intended to lift our hearts and our love to God and to say, you're amazing. Rather than to just expect and to take and to receive and to turn them into idols. He, he calls us trying to make the gifts of life the point of life. He calls it all the way through vanity. You try to grab at it. But, but if you grab onto that thing and try to hold onto that thing to find life, it's not there. They're, they're real realities, but they can't give you what only satisfaction in God can give. So, for instance, I love the beach. I go a couple times a year, by God's grace. I love, when the, I love waves. I think they're incredible. I don't know why. It's my thing. So I love watching. But if I go down and I try and grab a wave and put it in my pocket to take home, How's that going to go? It just, you, you can't. I think, by the way, I think this is one of the reasons we're so obsessed with taking pictures of everything. Every moment we want to chronicle, we want to have it because we don't want to lose it. And I think that, and again, I'm not saying that if you take pictures, your soul is empty and you don't love God. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but it might be, okay? And I don't know. We all have to look and see. We live in an age where we're looking for meaning. And it's, it's amazing how we're always trying to grab and hold on to things. I wonder why. Now, there's also another caution. There's another caution that's implied throughout the book. And it's this. That to not enjoy God's good gifts is actually sinful. To not enjoy God's good gifts is actually sinful. Now, that may sound strange to some of you who are raised in a little more fundamentalist home, maybe. Where you're like, there's happiness to be enjoyed? There actually is. God is good. God is a benevolent Father. He's a creative God who makes a world of wonder for us to enjoy. He loves to give good gifts, to the Scripture says, to both the, the righteous and the wicked. Again, stars and moon and food and drink and friendships and colors and smells and all of these things, again, feelings are all given by God for us to enjoy, again, for the greater purpose of looking to Him. So to just kind of make it through life and be like, oh, I'm supposed to be miserable for the glory of God, like that's, that's, not, in, that's not from the Bible either. We are to be a people who have eyes open to see every moment as being from Him and to enjoy every single gift that he gives along the way. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says it this way, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. Have you ever thought about that? You can eat and drink to the glory of God. And you can also eat and drink in a way that doesn't bring God glory. So for instance, another thing I'm amazed by oranges. Now think about it. You get this pre-wrapped snack that the Lord gives, okay? It's attractive in color. Orange is not a bad color. Not my favorite, but it's fine, right? So it's, it's pretty color. You open it up, and then he's already cut it up for you. Amazing. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? I mean, apples are great too. God bless them. But an orange, he's already put it into little sections for you, bite-sized sections. Just enough to enjoy, not too much to get full in the first bite. So you, you've got it and then, when you're peeling it, it kind of puts off a little aroma for you. 
It smells good. And again, if you're opposed to oranges, there's other fruits. That's fine. But for me, it puts off a smell that's enjoyable. And then when you taste it, it's amazing. Or if you don't want to chew on it, you can drink it out and drink it. I mean, it's, it's so easy to just overlook that kind of stuff and to not pause and be amazed that there's a God that makes oranges. Go peel you an orange for the glory of God later and enjoy. Or whatever the thing is. We live in a world that is packed full of those kinds of little sweet gifts day in and day out that are intended to help us to enjoy life. Anybody know what the Garden of Eden, anybody know what Eden means, the translation? It means delight. The Garden of Eden was the delight of the Lord, a place he delighted in and a place in which the people were to delight. God makes things for us to enjoy. This is why grumbling is such a serious sin. Complaining is such a serious sin and why it sent an entire generation of the Israelites to judgment is because they continually overlooked. I mean, you think Uber, Uber food that's direct, you know, brought to your house is amazing? Like, God sent manna from heaven every morning. And he provided for them, and all they could do is think about how much better it was when we were slaves. They grumbled against God. This is why boredom and laziness are actually serious sins. It's a form of ungrateful protest that says to God, what you have made, what you have given, is not ultimately good or interesting, which ultimately means that we think that God is not good or interesting or beautiful or amazing. But what the, the gospel does is it shines the light into our dark world and into our dark hearts to give us eyes to see that actually God's amazing and that everything that He does and everything He's provided for us is amazing, which is intended to help us to love Him, to be continually having a heart of thankfulness. That's why there's a command, in everything give thanks. That's the posture of those who have eyes to see. This is why when people say, y'all, heaven's going to be boring, I'm like, listen, y'all, no. One of my favorite observations in the Scripture is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Do you remember what the angels are crying out when they're before God? Holy, holy, holy. That's 700 years before Christ. Fast forward however long, thousands of years, to Revelation chapter 4. The angels are there again. Does anybody know what they're crying out? Holy, holy, holy. The angels have been with God for thousands of years, and they haven't gotten over him. They're amazed at him and his set-apartness and how there's nobody like him, and there's nothing, there's, nobody could do anything like he does. They're amazed by him. This life is filled with countless signposts that are intended to help us to enjoy life and the God who gives it. Verse 9, rejoice, O man, a young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes. And some of you may have read that and thought, that's interesting because the Scripture is really clear that the idea of following your heart to find life is really dangerous. Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And then in Numbers 15, 39, it even says, do not follow after your own heart. 
But that's why he follows this instruction here in Ecclesiastes with verse 9, but know that all these things will bring you into judgment. This whole book is intended to to sober our minds and give us clear eyes and to, to adjust our hearts in light of eternity so that we delight ourselves in God and then we're free to follow the heart in that sense, a heart that is guided by the Spirit of God and the Word of God to enjoy things according to the way God's made them. This is Augustine's famous counsel, love and do what you will. In the context of that, that sermon in 1 John 4, what he means is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And as you do, then you're free to do whatever you want because you're always going to be loving God and loving others. There's freedom that we have. But it's essential to grasp the need to enjoy things and the reason we enjoy things while you're young because life and youthfulness are vanity. Which brings us to that second sub-point. Your, your youth is Vanity. Your youth is vanity. Again, verse 8 of chapter 11, all that comes is vanity. 11.10, remove vexation, which means anxiety or grief or sorrow, from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Again, remember, vanity doesn't mean meaningless, but rather the, the inability to grasp it and to hold it. Grabbing wind, smoke, clouds in the pocket. It can't be done It can merely be enjoyed and appreciated and move us to worship God because those things in and of themselves are are fleeting. I pointed out earlier that youth shows up four times in our passage. And what he's doing is he's calling upon the young to stop. To stop. To put down your phone. To draw your attention to eternity. And to consider the fact in 11.8 that days of darkness are coming. He's been doing this all the way through this book. That that we are making us aware that we are all on a trajectory toward the grave. That death is the unavoidable reality that the author continually thrusts in our face. That we we don't like to think about our, our death. But the author of of Ecclesiastes says that we must because it serves as, as smelling salts for the soul. That's why he says in 12.1, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. On the horizon, he says, are the evil days that draw near. Speaking of the unavoidable days of old age. Not morally evil here, but the reality that youthfulness is, is, is vanity and you can't grasp it. So you need to do all you can to enjoy what God has given while you can. I think this is an important word for a congregation that's generally as young as this one is. We have energy and capacity and strength and ambition. And there's a great temptation that, that we face to use strength and our best years to indulge in both fleeting pleasures apart from God and in building our own kingdoms, which as we've talked about in other sections are, are but sandcastles on, on the shore. Many of us, we wouldn't say it this way, but deep down we think, well, when I get to this place, then I'll really serve God. Solomon says, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. He's trying to teach us how life works. Life isn't just a mad 
mess that is swirling around aimlessly, though it often feels that way. And he, he says that in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But, but rather, there is a Creator who made you and who made life. And you need and I need His wisdom so that we're not overtaken by the fleeting foolishness that is so magnetic to us. He says, remember your Creator. It's not a, a passive thing, but it's, it's, it's intentional action. He's saying, force your mind to consider, to be informed, to be influenced by something. And that something is, is God, the one who made you. And he says, do that while you still can. Do you remember your Creator? Or if you're honest, do you, do you live like a practical atheist? Do, do you pray? I mean, really pray. And I'm not just talking about do you have times for prayer, that's very important, but are you throughout the day communing with God? Truly a child who knows that in every decision we ought to speak with Him and cry out to Him. Everything that we eat, that we receive with thankfulness, decisions, relationships, all to be navigated by remembering Him and looking to His Word and what He would say about these things. If you're too often, we're busy staring at our screens and making our plans and living really as if He doesn't exist except when we need Him. I want to, I want to say one other word on this. It's, it's very possible to be religious and yet not remember God. And again, this is not intended to be a guilt trip. This is intended to just cause you to, to consider. Many of us have come to church today but have not even really talked to God yet. We gave a lot of attention as to what we would wear and whether we would be on time and how we would appear while we were here before others, but gave very little thought to our souls. That whenever there were prayers that were actually being prayed, that we, we weren't actually praying we just did the religious thing and put our head down when you're supposed to. Or that when songs were being sang, we actually weren't lifting songs to God. We were just saying words because that's what you do when, sings, when you're singing songs. It's, listen, I can prepare a sermon and I can tell you what the Bible says and not once ask God for wisdom. You can sit through this whole thing and make it through another sermon. And it not affect you a bit because you're not coming eagerly to hear the word. Don't, don't let mere religious activity disillusion you and deceive you into thinking that, that you're not wasting your life. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. On the horizon looms something that we cannot escape, old age and death, where your, your body and your mind will slowly grind to a halt. And it looks different for everyone, but, but what he's going to do in verses 2 through 7 is he is going to use poetry, he's going to use poetic language, to portray for us both the physical and psychological decline that we face as we grow older. He's using metaphors and analogies to capture the way that youthfulness and all its vigor and passion and strength 
fade away and leave you unable to enjoy life. 12.2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. There is a storm that is moving in. Now, during your youth, oftentimes you're able to endure the storms and bounce back from hardships and sicknesses, but someday clouds will gather and they will not disperse. They will choke out the light. Again, poetic language. I'll try to uh, comment as we walk through. Verse 3, In the day when the keepers of the house tremble. It's talking about the day when your, your hands become weak and they shake. Strong men are bent. Talking about your legs. Whenever you read through the, the Bible, you see often legs are, are spoken of as, as the strength of men. Here legs grow bowed and limp. The grinders, your teeth, cease because they are few. And now people drink smoothies because it's in style, but there's a day when you have to because you've got no other options. You lose your teeth. You can't eat. Eating's miserable. Those who look through the windows are dim. In old age, you lose your eyesight and things become blurry. 12.4, the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, your ears lose the ability to hear. You're left out of conversations. You're missing words. Verse 4, one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, and they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. Not all, but many older people have a hard time sleeping. They're spooked easily, rattled and annoyed by, by loud sounds. 12.5, the almond tree blossoms. Speaking about your hair turning gray. The grasshopper drags itself along. And when you think of a grasshopper, what do you think of? Quick little suckers, right? I mean, they just hop around and you're quick. Well, there's a day when the grasshopper will drag himself. So last week, John Henderson and I played basketball, half-court basketball against some people. And afterwards, his back, he's doing this, and my knee, I'm doing this, and we're walking along, and we looked at each other, and we're like, it was a good day. <laughs> neither one of us went to the hospital. <laughs> like, that's just where we are, you know? The grasshopper, it, you know, it, you, just, you just can't do what you used to do. Desire fails. If you have an NASB there, it'll say the, the caper berry is ineffective. Caperberry is an aphrodisiac that arouses sexual desire. He's saying there's a day coming when desire will not work any longer. And all of these are signs, verse 5, because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. He says, enjoy God while you can because your youth will not last forever. Soon you will breathe your last and mourners will gather around your body as it is buried. He uses these images of death. The, the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken. A lamp that, that, a golden lamp that's held by a silver string, it snaps and it falls and it shatters. 
the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. This picture of drawing water to drink to give life, but, but now it's stopped because the pitcher that holds the water and the wheel that draws it, they're broken. They don't work anymore. You can't get the water and you're just withering away to dust, 12.7. The dust returns to the earth as it was and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. This is not a denial of the resurrection someday. It's, it's, it's simply him describing that we die. From dust we came to dust we shall return as God promised Adam. This is why he says enjoy God's gifts while you can, verse 8, because vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Youthfulness cannot be grasped. Listen, you can't hold on to your healthy bodies. You cannot preserve your clear minds. Eat your kale, God bless you, but I'm just telling you, you can't stop it. Your desires and ambitions will fade. Rather, God says, while you can, enjoy life and employ what you have for His glory, not fleeting things. And He wants us to do all of this because he wants us to do all of this today because of what is coming on the last day. Which brings us to our second point. Live today in light of the last day. Live today in light of the last day. Chapter 12, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he chose words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails. Firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. Much study is a weariness of flesh. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon's message and ministry here is summarized for us. He's the wise teacher who gave careful thought and pondered and considered how to arrange his words to be most useful and attractive to help us under the inspiration of of the Spirit because there is a day of judgment that is coming. He says, listen now because listening will not always be easy. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. A goad, if you're unfamiliar, is a, it's a long stick, usually about six feet long with a, with a nail or a sharp point at the end. And it's used by herd drivers to keep an, an ox or a large animal on, on the path that you wanted. It keeps them moving. It keeps them moving down the, to the path. And if they, if they stray to the left, then you poke them and there's pain. And if they stray to the right, you, you poke them and there's, there's pain. If they stop moving. You poke them and there's pain. He likens the goad to God's Word. Certainly it is sweet unless we resist it. 
then there is, there is pain. Life is, is rigged. When we resist His ways, He graciously goads you. See, walking in God's peace and the path of love and joy is aided by the painful prodding of His Word. This, by the way, is why many of us find life so frustrating and painful. Because many of us are not surrendered to whatever God wants. Now pause. I'm not saying that if there's hardship in your life, it's definitely because you're disobedient. Jesus was crucified. Paul was beaten often for his obedience. But there's a common theme in wisdom literature that if you walk against the way that the Creator has made, that life is hard. This is why God graciously pokes you with His Word and providentially arranges situations to, to, yeah, to make your plans cease. So I would ask you, are you, are you surrendered to God's Word? Do you come to God's Word always expecting to be instructed? Or a great question that came out of, of David Gibson's book is, when was the last time you obeyed something that offended you from God's Word? When was the last time you saw God tell you to do something and you didn't like it, but you said, yes, Lord? You see, walking with God requires faith that His Word is true and it's good and it can be trusted even when it calls you to do things that you don't desire to do. And he encouraged us to remember that these words are all given by one shepherd, the Lord, the good shepherd who guides us with his word. I think this is important for us to hear uh, that, that God is the shepherd who gives his word because God is not just some dictator who pokes you with truth. He is a shepherd of the sheep. He speaks to us and walks with us. His wisdom keeps us on the straight path that leads to eternal life. He is the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters for refreshment. He is the good shepherd who makes us lay down in green pastures of his provision that we may enjoy it. He is the good shepherd who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and turns the light on for us. And his ways don't always make sense, but his word is always true and always trustworthy. And this, Solomon would say to us here at the end, is essential because as we have seen in Ecclesiastes, life does not always or regularly make sense. We live in a cursed world where babies die and engagements are broken off and requests for dates never come. And jobs are lost, and health is overtaken by disease, and dreams are crushed, and friends betray, and dictators oppress, and courts corrupt. And so often down here in this broken, cursed, swirling world, we don't know what to do. And what Solomon would say here is trust the words of the Good Shepherd. And follow his ways. And though it will feel like life is filled with detours of despair, he knows the destination. And he has shown you the destination. And now he promises he will lead you home. But we must be surrendered. And listen, 
That's why he warns us in verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books. There is no end, and much study is weariness of flesh. He says, go on Amazon or go to Barnes & Noble or wherever you get your books, and you can find endless volumes of advice of how to make life work. He says, "It's, it's not there unless it echoes the things that are in this book. Verse 13. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commands, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says you have heard everything now, and we're going to summarize it in one thing. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commands. These exhortations are in important order. Did you catch it there? The fear of God and the keeping of His commandments. You see, the the fear of God is a gracious work of the Holy Spirit. When we trust in Christ, when we repent of our sins and and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit has given us eyes to see Jesus is beautiful and we are what's called born again. And He produces in us a, a right understanding of who God is and who we are. And it changes our heart toward God. It teaches us to fear Him and to love Him and to revere Him. And what that fear of God does is it produces actions, responses. Responses that flow from faith that, that listen to Him and obey Him. Faith gives us eyes to see and it, it helps us to fear, which from that fuels obedience. This is what Solomon has been aiming to do all the way through here, is to help us to have eyes of faith, to see that there is a God who rules over the madness. This exhortation to fear God, it means basically to see God for who He is, to know that He is the Creator to whom we owe everything, that our life and our breath and our food, everything that we have comes from Him. It's a, a right estimation of Him and a right estimation of ourselves. It is a, it's a humility of heart. I often use the, the picture of, I've already used the ocean a couple times, so we'll use the Grand Canyon. You go to the Grand Canyon or you go to the, the foot of the Rockies and you see something that's just grand and bigger than you. And it, it puts you in your place in a sense. And this is what God's Word does for us. It helps us to to fear God, that we are put in our place, that He is the Maker. He's the Creator and we are the creature. It is to humble us. It is a wise thing to embrace our place as creatures who are dependent, to know our mortality, and to know our need for forgiveness. It's interesting, the forgiveness. If you want to know how do I cultivate the fear of the Lord, Seek forgiveness from Him. Listen to this from Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Meaning, if we brought out into the light everything you've ever done, every motive, every word, everything, if it was brought out into the light, who you really are, every deleted email, every deleted search history, every glance, everything that you've, everything, every lie, every white lie, whatever that is, everything brought into the light, who could stand before a holy God? 
Nobody. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are holy, holy, holy. We are sinful, sinful, sinful. That's why he follows that with, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but with you? There is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness produces fear in the heart. A liberating fear. Not a paralyzing fear that makes you stay at home and never want to sin again. But rather, what it does is a liberating fear that sees God as a benevolent, good God, so much so that He would send His Son who would go to the cross and there He would receive the judgment and the wrath for all of our transgressions. That it would be heaped upon Him and then He would go into the grave, that place that all of us are going to. And then Jesus would rise from the dead and now proclaim that if anybody will humble themselves turn from their sin, believe in Him, that they'll be reconciled to God and that we can have a right estimation of Him and us and life. It produces a posture of the heart where we fear Him, where we are aware that everything we have is grace. So the cliche of how you doing, better than I deserve, that wears me out. But it is true if you're a Christian. Any moment you're not in hell is better than we deserve. Everything we have from him is but grace. He says, have that posture before him. And what that's going to do is the producing of obedience. Keep his commandments. God is the creator who's above us, who tells us how life works. He's the shepherd who is near us, who will help us to obey. There's so much to be said here. I'm going to say this one thing, though. The mark of love for God is obedience to Him and brokenheartedness when you don't. The mark of love for God is obedience to Him out of faith and brokenheartedness when you don't. This is why David was called a man after God's own heart. He was a, he was a serious sinner, but he was even more so a repenter and a griever over his sin because he loved God and he didn't want to offend him and he didn't want to bring reproach upon his name. This is why Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be, be, be made full. Obedience and joy. Fear, obedience, joy, they're all connected. We fear God. It's a right posture of the heart which is going to produce obedience to him which is going to produce joy because this life is rigged. The way to know true joy is to receive every gift that's given from a benevolent creator. It's all wonderfully set up to point us to him and our need for him. And he tells us we are to fear him and obey his commandments, and then he tells us why in verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, he mentioned this back in verse 9 of chapter 11. Walk in the ways of your heart and see in the sight of your eyes, but know for all these things God will bring you into judgment. This gives us both a caution and a comfort. The caution is this. Hang this upon the, the wall of your mind that history and your life is moving to a moment in which all things will be seen. 
All the ways we have walked, all our words, all our motives will be brought into the light. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God will bring you into judgment. Have fun, but do not forget that there's a way to enjoy life that honors God, and there's a way to enjoy it that is sinful and rebellious against him. And life is just long enough to prove which one we've lived. We say this often here. Every moment matters. Every decision matters. Every email you send, every social media thing you post, every text message, every conflict, every word to or about, everything matters. God sees it all. The book of Revelation ends near the end of it in chapter 20, gives this scene. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. This is the Lord. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them, meaning there's nowhere to hide. I saw the dead, great and small, famous and forgotten, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. The dead there speaking of unbelievers, those who have not had their sins forgiven and their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 13 of, of that, that chapter says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of Ecclesiastes is intended to sober all of us. So if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, it is God's mercy for you to hear this. You will see this moment again, I suspect, on the day of judgment. This is a moment of mercy for you to hear that Jesus died in the place of sinners like you and me and he rose from the dead so that on that last day, your name will be in the book of life where all of your deeds that should be charged against you will be blotted out by his blood and you will be received, forgiven. This is the hope of the believer that Christ was obedient in our place, that he feared God and he obeyed the commands in a way that we never could and he died for all the ways that we didn't and then he rose to give us life. And then what Ecclesiastes does for us is that second thing, certainly caution but also comfort. We can have peace today knowing that one day soon God will bring all things into the light of his perfect justice. Back in chapter 4, Solomon said, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. The people of God can take comfort and know that one day, oppression will be overturned. Tears of the oppressed will be wiped away, and the Lord himself will comfort the crushed. And all the things that perplex us now will be made plain then. All the mysteries that, that confound us now will be made clear then. 
And this is what Ecclesiastes has been teaching us. That we must live today in light of the last day. We must allow our hearts to see by God's grace with with eyes of faith and believe that this crazy life is not meaningless, but is eternally meaningful. Because God reigns and rules over the whole thing. He is the creator and the shepherd. And it is that perspective that allows every moment leading up to that day of judgment to be filled with both enjoyment and meaning. It's, it's really interesting that Ecclesiastes is so often seen as a depressing, joy-sapping book. And that, in one sense, it's, 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 that's true. It's sobering and it's dark. But that's not all that it is. This book, in a unique way, meets us in the darkness and lifts our eyes from being under the clouds of despair and takes us to see life over the sun, beyond the sun, from the one who made it, from the perspective of God himself. It humbles us as the creature to remember our creator and summons us as sheep to be cared for by the one good shepherd. And as that happened, every moment is filled with meaning under the sun. Every moment that God has given is a gift that is to be enjoyed with gratitude. Every bite, every drink, every sunset, every laugh, every time with friends is given from God as a gift to remind us of Him and where life is moving to. No matter what hardships we face, the best best is yet to come. I have a friend named, named Josh Smith who's a pastor in Texas and his wife was going through cancer and during that, that season he, she, she survived by God's grace but at the end of his emails he would always sign the best is yet to come which means he didn't know how it was going to turn out but he knew the truths that held him fast what I'm going to do is I'm going to conclude by we're going we're to bow and we're going we're to pray I'm going to read a couple passages of scripture that God has given to us that that are intended to lift our eyes, to see things from the end, to aid us today that we might walk with him and fear him and obey him until we see him. Would you pray with me? Father, your word says to us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You tell us that this light, momentary affliction, which so often does not feel light or momentary, you tell us that it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Your word tells us that you are the God who causes all things to work together for good for those who love you for those who know Christ and have been born again and been forgiven, who have been called according to your purpose. So Father, we pray that you would use this study in Ecclesiastes to lift our eyes to see the grace that's given to us in Jesus, and that we would delight in him, and that you would, by the power of your Spirit, in the context of this local church and these friendships and these relationships, God, you would, you would help us to remind one another of the good gifts that are in front of us every day. Would you give us sobriety of mind and humility of heart and hopefulness in you, the one who works in the midst of all of the mess. So Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for the hope that we have in him and we pray that you would send him soon. But between now and then, 
Help us to remember our creator and our shepherd that we might follow in faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.